Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. There's no global industry that's as closely intertwined with international politics as oil. But many believe the global energy industry is about to change fundamentally under the impact of two epoch-making forces, climate change and the coronavirus. My guests on this week's podcast are Lord Brown of Mattingly, who as John Brown was chief executive of one of the world's great energy companies, BP, between 1995 and 2007. And he's joined by the FT's energy editor, David Shepard. So, are we finally seeing an end to the dominance of oil over the global economy? My own life has been punctuated by economic and political crises that were closely connected to oil and energy. It was meals by candlelight, but only for those who bought them before supplies ran out. It's now almost impossible to buy a candle, a stove or a heater. As a child in London in the 1970s, I remember the power cuts and the three-day working week that were imposed by a government that was desperate to conserve electricity. Consumption of electricity by industry will have to be cut by a half. The economic slump of the 1970s began with the so-called Arab oil embargo, which started as a protest against perceived Western support for Israel in the 1973 Arab-Israeli war. This was the first view of the huge American airlift in the skies over Israel. The Arab oil embargo caused the oil price to rise some 400% by the end of 1974, and that rammed home the lesson that the health of the economies of the West was crucially affected by wars and politics in the Middle East and by the price of oil. By August 1990, I was working as a foreign correspondent in Washington when this happened. To all intents and purposes, Kuwait has ceased to exist as an independent sovereign nation. And with one stroke, Saddam Hussein and Iraq have eliminated billions of dollars worth of debts, acquired enormous oil resources, and intimidated every other country. The rest of that year was dominated by the build-up to the first Gulf War of 1991. The Western powers that assembled the coalition to drive Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait talked of the need to restore international law and order. But few doubted that control of Middle Eastern oil was also a huge factor. Today, oil and energy are once again fundamental to international politics, but in new ways. The oil industry's environmental record is coming under increasing scrutiny, a development that was triggered by the largest marine oil spill in history that happened at BP's Deepwater Horizon oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico. That occurred in 2010, three years after the retirement of John Brown. These days, the biggest environmental issue facing the industry, indeed the world, is climate change. There's growing pressure on governments and investors to get out of the fossil fuel business altogether. Did you know this is a climate emergency 
Movements like Extinction Rebellion have rammed home this message in street demonstrations. The global pandemic poses further questions. Demand for oils collapsed as industries like aviation have effectively shut down. The oil price has slumped. Some say the industry will never be the same again. And if that's the case, there'll be dramatic implications for the world's major oil producers, countries such as Saudi Arabia, Russia, even the United States. So when I got this week's guests on the line, I started by asking Lord Brown if he thought the energy transition to a future beyond oil will be accelerated or delayed by the current pandemic. So I think before the pandemic struck us, many changes were already afoot. I think people were being more efficient in the way in which they were using oil. After all, oil intensity per unit of GDP has come down by over 30% in the last decade alone. People had the energy transition on the agenda. And uh, of course, climate change has become a real topic of debate with very divided opinions across the Atlantic. So all these things were happening before COVID-19 struck us. And I believe they will be reinforced, the other side of the pandemic, if there is another side to the pandemic. Why is that? I mean, because there is a counter argument that people will be so desperate for economic growth after the pandemic that they will say, look, we can't really afford all this climate change stuff. Let's just put our foot on the pedal. Well, I think it will take time for economic growth to come back. People's behaviour, after all, has been adjusted. For example, long-distance air travel. Working from home is a, a, a new experience, one which won't go away, but won't probably be overwhelming. So a lot of behaviour has changed, and I think probably will change permanently. I think this pandemic is one of the rare occasions where the world has seen nature providing us with a very big crisis. There are very few causes like that, one of which is uh, climate change. And I think this reminds people that uh, however powerful we think we are, nature trumps us always. It's always more powerful. And secondly, I think people have thought about this pandemic in terms of their own health, lungs, breathing, and they're saying, maybe we don't want this to happen again. So I think this is about understanding and respecting and nature as a cause of big change. And if we don't like what we see with the pandemic, we certainly would not like it at all if we ran willy-nilly to the end of climate change. This would not be good. And David, I mean, as you report on the energy industry, is it your impression that they are focused overwhelmingly on the immediate consequences for their businesses of the pandemic? Or do you detect any attempt to shift long-term thinking as well? I see a real shift emerging in long-term thinking, at least within the European energy majors. One of the first things BP, for example, did is the sheer impact of the pandemic became understood within the oil industry. The collapse in demand, the, the associated collapse in prices was rather than say, we're going to back away from our commitments to the energy transition. If anything, they've reinforced it, saying, no, this is, this is real, this is long-term, and this actually influences our thinking as to how we look towards the future. They've not done this in isolation. They've also been joined by Royal Dutch Shell, who have committed similarly to BP to becoming a net zero company in the future, meaning 
that essentially their emissions will fall to a level whereby they can net them out down to essentially nothing with various carbon mitigation strategies. How they get there exactly still remains to be seen, and there'll be more information coming later this year, we expect. But the key thing is, is that there's a very clear commitment from oil and gas companies to say that essentially, in the long run, they will be producing less oil and gas. That's not been mirrored to the same degree across the Atlantic and the United States. It's certainly not been mirrored to the same degree in the, the large national oil companies, such as Saudi Aramco or, or those elsewhere in the Middle East or, or Africa. But there does seem to be a sense that as an industry, it's not just enough to deal with a short-term crisis, doing the usual things such as cutting back dividends or you know shrinking headcount, cutting costs in any way they can. And Lord Brown, I mean, both of you have now referred to this division in a way between the European oil majors, like the one that you used to head, and the American companies. Why is that? Is that just a different political climate? And do you expect it to widen? It is a different political climate, but that climate is changing. After all, the United States is not uniform in its approach to climate change. There are 50 states and there are many, many varieties of response to climate change. So oil and gas companies will have to be very careful how they consider their future in the United States. But people have been, I think, behaving in the United States in in a very simple way, uh, which uh, governs many corporations, which is we will do what we are permitted to do under the law. We will do no less and no more. Uh, And anything else is a decision which should be referred back to the government to change the law and regulation. And that, I think, is an attitude which is not shared by European companies who tend to look at what they're doing in the round and saying, actually, we need to do things which respect all our stakeholders. After all, it was only very recently that the Business Council in the United States really accepted the fact that uh, stakeholders had a role in the governance of corporations going forward. So I think it's very much an attitude of mine. Having said that, there are plenty of things going on in the United States which are designed to reduce the emissions of hydrocarbons, so uh, methane, which is a global warming gas, as well as carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, and companies are going to have to respond to that. I think the response of oil and gas companies is to uh, begin to think about regarding oil as something which you can take cash out of rather than grow for the future, while keeping gas globally uh, as something which might have a growth aspect for the future. So I think there is a big change now in what in effect is the allocation of capital within all oil and gas companies. David, I've heard some European oil executives very, very worried actually about the pressure they're being put on by the environmental industry, particularly by shareholders, and arguing that this divergence between the American and the European approaches actually potentially places them at a significant disadvantage. Do you hear that much? I don't think too many of the majors are framing it as a disadvantage at this stage. I mean, one of the very interesting things to come out of these relatively early stages of this pandemic is that renewable energy companies have generally performed better during the market volatility than we've seen from the oil and gas companies. So from their point of view, this isn't just an idea of we need to do the right thing. But there's a real sort of hard-headed look as well that says, actually, with the costs of renewables coming down and these being 
often in terms of wind farms and solar plants, you're being able to lock in longer-term revenues in a more stable way than you can do with the oil price. There's a real economic incentive at the same time to go alongside the societal pressure. Can I just add, I think we shouldn't think of uh, these different parts of the world in isolation. The common element between them, of course, is the investor. And investors have had a bad time with oil and gas companies. They've performed terribly. And actually, you would have been better off investing in a renewable energy company over the last uh, decade or so than in oil and gas. But investors, too, and their beneficiaries are beginning to say, wait a minute, now, we don't want you to supply more capital to uh, the oil and gas industry. And that will affect a lot of the oil and gas industry, not necessarily the majors, but, for example, the shale players in the Permian Basin in the United States, who've had to live on a steady diet of more and more capital. And when capital is not forthcoming, then obviously the business model changes and production goes down and people do different things. I'll come back to shale in a second, but before I do that, I mean, just as I recall, just before the pandemic hit, or around about the same time, there was this extraordinary turmoil in the oil market following sort of failure discussions between major producers involving the Russians, the Saudis, the Americans. It was an incredible tangle with big geopolitical implications. Lord Brunt, can you talk us through what happened as you see it? Certainly. Again, before the pandemic uh, struck us, Saudi Arabia had made arrangements themselves, of course, to improve their production by agreeing a deal in the so-called neutral zone and by increasing inventories. They were most concerned to see that their market share was declining and that their power in the market had radically changed over the many years. It struck me as being very similar to Saudi's feeling of where it was in 1985-86 when it was put into a corner by controlling the market and its production went down and down and then they opened the taps up and the price collapsed and stayed low in today's money, roughly between $30 and $40 a barrel for over 15 years until China suddenly woke up. So it's all about expressing your power and getting a position in the market. And I think their frustration was that the United States was the world's biggest producer of liquids, including oil, and uh, showed no signs of diminishing at all. And so something had to be done to cut down the amount of production coming from the United States. And as a result of all this, in addition to the increase in supply, because there was no deal available, there was a collapse in demand, probably overstated at the time, but people's view was there was nowhere to put the oil. And indeed, the amount of storage that appeared to be available was negligible, And so people said, well, if you're going to produce oil, I don't want it. And you'll have to pay me to take it away. And so hence negative prices. That didn't last very long. And there was quite a big decoupling between the financial markets and actually the physical markets at the time. And that restored uh, to today's levels now, where I think people think demand isn't as weak as they thought it was when that crisis took place. But the oil price is around $30 to $35 a barrel and shows no signs of recovery at the moment. And geopolitically, that was a very interesting moment, wasn't it? Because one of the features of the Trump era has been the extraordinary closeness between the White House and the House of Saud. Trump's first foreign visit, I think, was to Saudi Arabia. And yet here they were falling out, essentially. Well, there was no need to lift oil from Saudi Arabia. And uh, that began to change attitudes. I don't think it's the only thing that affects the US's position in the Gulf. Clearly it's not. 
but it began to weaken, I think, the dialogue between the two. And Saudi Arabia was, I think, very concerned that in the end they could be squeezed into a, a marginal player. That probably is not realistic. I mean, they do have the world's biggest supply of low-cost reserves and will be in the business of producing oil and selling it for as long as we need it, which will be for a long time. We may not be at anything like today's levels, but it'll be a long time until it leaves the total global energy system. And David, what did it mean, this collapse in prices, and then, as Lord Brown points out, a partial recovery for the viability of US shale gas? Because for the last decade, we've got used to the Americans saying, you know, this is not just an energy revolution, but a geopolitical revolution, because America is now the world's largest producer, no longer so dependent on imported oil. What's the future of shale gas? It's currently certainly in decline and has been found in a position whereby it was burning through cash year after year and growing rapidly as a result, but it was largely borrowed money without ever returning much to to investors or shareholders. So there was a sense even before the pandemic that Wall Street was starting to sour on the shale industry. But it can be an industry that has relatively short memories. So if oil prices come back and we're still in an environment of very low interest rates, it may be that money becomes available again to extract this resource, especially if we see a significant recovery in oil prices. The thing with the shale sector is that even if we see less drilling for now and the US becomes once again more dependent on importing it's always worth remembering that the biggest source of foreign crude into the United States is Canada. So it's not really a security of supply risk. But the shale oil is there. The industry knows where it is. If the price comes back and they can access financing once again, people will be able to tap that resource. From Saudi Arabia's point of view, they really have to walk a very delicate tightrope at this time. They faced real pressure from Donald Trump. One of the biggest political changes that we've seen through this was actually the acknowledgement from Donald Trump that low oil prices were not always a good thing anymore for the US economy. He came to realise quite quickly that while he's always been a champion of lower gasoline prices for consumers, that having the price collapse to 20, 10 or even lower dollars a barrel was not good for the wider US economy, given its role, as, as Lord Brown says, the world's biggest liquids producer. You had this situation at the height of the pandemic where the US president was essentially putting pressure on others to raise the price of oil. And that would be unthinkable at any time in the last 40 years. But for the Saudis, some of them are looking at this right now and thinking that they may be in something of a sweet spot. By reducing production themselves again, they've done enough to prop up the price of oil, to placate President Trump to ward off some of the wilder statements that were being made, both by U.S. senators and to an extent Mr. Trump himself, about loosening the military and political ties between the two countries as a result of Saudi's action in the oil market. That's largely been dampened down for the moment. But they still see this sort of $30 to $40 barrel that we're trading in for oil right now is too low for shale to grow again. So they've managed to placate the U.S. president, whilst at the same time seeing what is arguably their greatest rival shrink. So for them, they see this as something of a win. But the longer term question still remains. $40 oil isn't particularly good for Saudi Arabia. A quicker peak in oil demand is certainly not good for Saudi Arabia. The fact is, if you believe a peak in oil demand is coming and you're the world's largest oil exporter, and that is the major underpinning of your economy, 
you start to have to ask questions pretty quickly about what you're going to do with your resource. And there is an argument that once this is all calmed down and if life starts to get back to something approaching normal, will we see Saudi Arabia as willing to keep cutting production in the future? Or does it make sense for them to try and get the oil out of the ground as fast as they can and compensate for lower oil prices by having a greater share of the market? Now, that has grave implications for the wider industry. Okay, and Lord Brown, I'd like to finish by looking at the broader implications really beyond the energy industry. When we started talking, you spoke about how many people's whole view of life really has changed because of this pandemic and renewed, if you like, respect for the power of the natural world. I think another thing that a lot of people are talking about is whether it's made people rethink the economic system that we've built up really since the end of the Cold War, which is you know, usually known as globalization. Now, you were head of one of the great global companies. Do you think we've reached not peak oil, but peak globalization? And is that a good or a bad thing if, if there is a backlash? I think a lot of this, again, was in train before the pandemic struck us. Deglobalization, uh, the change in uh, the relationship between the US and China, a leading indicator of that, the inability of the WTO to work, those things were definitely in train, and I believe they will be accelerated. AI has been dramatic in its impact. I think the pandemic will push it further. People are concerned, I think, not only about health, but also resilience. So people are looking at supply chains and saying, we'd like to have them closer to home. We want to make sure that actually they really do work. And so reshoring national centers of manufacturing All these things are on the agenda. Do I believe that everything will change radically immediately? No, I don't. Do I believe the trends are in place for significant change? Yes, I do. I think we will redefine efficiency. Efficiency in a business sense was about having no inventory just in time, management and going to the lowest cost supplier anywhere. That will all change. And that will have consequences about the social economics as well as the simple financial economics. And I do think people will think about that more carefully. We have, after all, gotten to a position now where governments have kind of nationalized the payrolls. And for that, there will be consequences. There'll be consequences about people's views of their own resilience and their own security. And I think there'll be changes in the views of governments on how they should regulate and make sure that they don't have to intervene if there are events in society that cause disruptions, maybe not on the scale of pandemics, but close to. So I think a lot is going to change. And I would expect that the way in which people think about corporations will definitely change. After all, that was changing. Even the top businesses in the United States have agreed that stakeholders matter. In Europe, we decided that a long time ago. Now I think we'll take that much more seriously. I just note how investors are taking more and more note of so-called ESG factors in beginning to think about how they should construct their portfolios. It's not always there. It's not as strong an impact as it might be, but it feels like it's going in a direction that's unstoppable. And finally, your thoughts personally on that. I mean, you were head of a great multinational in the heyday of globalisation. You seem to think that we're definitely moving into something which is not totally different, but a serious modification of the old system. Do you fear for the new era or do you kind of welcome it? No, I don't fear for the new era. I actually believe that uh, human innovation, inventiveness always creates a better answer than we can think of today. And I still believe that very, very firmly. To be in business and not be an optimist is a contradiction in terms. 
we have to think about creating brand new things and brand new ways. And I think we will find different ways of running businesses, maybe even governments, that will be better for the future, but they won't be the same as the past. After all, who said that the past is the best? I, I think the best is always yet to come. Okay, well, on that unusual but welcomely optimistic note for this era, thank you very much indeed, Lord Brown. Thanks very much also to my colleague, David Shepherd, And that's it for this week. That was Lord Brown ending this edition of the Rachman Review. And if you could spare a few moments, we'd love to hear from you about what you think about the show and how it can improve. We're running a survey, which you can find at ft.com slash Rachman Survey. You might also like to subscribe to the FT's Coronavirus Business Update, a level-headed expert email briefing on how the pandemic's affecting global markets, business, and the workplace. Visit ft.com slash RachmanReviewCovid to sign up for free access for 30 days. There's a link in our show notes. And please join us again next week. You can find us in all the usual podcast apps. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.